We are continuing with Acts today, and Acts 15 is, is where we're going to go today. So we've um, been dancing around the passage that I'm going to look at today. Uh, uh, Ian Brown looked at the Jerusalem Council a few weeks ago, and that was prior to what we're reading today. And Marguerite picked up after the fact. Uh, and I did that, I've sort of moved it around a bit because I didn't want to mess with the uh, preparation time of other preachers. So um, I've, but we couldn't really, there's some thoughts in this passage that I didn't want to escape, uh, want to just gloss over or, or bypass. There's some good th- things in here that I really felt would be good for us today to think about in the context of personal mission. I will remind you briefly about a message I spoke about back in June. Can you cast your mind back to June? Back in June, I mean, I don't remember what I read on Facebook this morning, but let me remind you of a sermon from June. (laughs) We looked at Philip the Evangelist. Who remembers that? We did three weeks looking at Philip, and uh, and I looked at his spiritual DNA. What made him an evangelist? And uh, we saw that people effective in evangelism back then had some really key traits about them. Uh, We learned that they were grounded in their theology. All right, if you are going to, seriously, if you're going to be an evangelist, you need to know what you know, because the world's getting smarter, and you need to have some answers. All right, that's just a fact of life nowadays. Um, They have skill in appropriate engagement. They know how to engage with the people that that they are speaking to. You need to know, obviously, we need to have some skills in knowing when you're in an environment that God has called you to be, you are separated to that task and you are skilled in that task of, of meeting of speaking to those people they operated under the holy spirit's empowerment the spirit is front and center in acts right we cannot do anything without the holy spirit all right otherwise it's a work of man not a work of jesus and they had the full support and the encouragement of their church community if you want to go back and listen to that sermon feel free and look for those bullet points in that sermon Today I'm going to explore some of that and I've got a, a, my working title for today is simply the mindset of mission and uh, there are some insights in what we're going to read today that I just want to hone in on, look at a few thoughts, hopefully some of this will encourage, some of this will empower, some of this will refocus us um, but let's come, let's come today wearing the hat of I am, I am called to do the work of an evangelist, I have a mission field in my life. And today we're going to look at how some more think keys about engagement with that and how we carry ourselves and that sort of thing. So the tail end of Acts chapter 15, uh, verse 36 is where we're going to start reading today. So here we go. All right. Sometime later, this is after the Jerusalem Council there. Paul, you know, Paul's hanging around in Antioch at this time. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of God and see how they are going. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Stop. How do you think about mission in that? Mission begins with the right heart. 
It begins with the right heart fit for what God specifically ordains for us. I love the opening comments here. Let's go, let's visit, let's nurture. Let's go. There's a sense of living a life of sentness. A friend of mine named Kim Hammond over in Melbourne wrote a book with that title, Sentness. Living in a sent state of mind. That is part of what we do as a Christian. We live understanding that Jesus has commissioned us, told us to go. If you've been told to go, you have been sent. That's how it works. We live a life of sentness. And that's what Paul is doing here. It's the heart of Paul as he's instigating this next missionary venture. Paul clearly understood that God had ordained a specific location and a specific group of people for his missional work. And he's feeling compelled to get face-to-face with them again. The church where he's at is a good apostolic center, but it is nothing. It is an apostolic center. It is a church planning center. It is a sending center. And Paul knows he's got to go. And he's, got, he's not writing letters. He's not sending cash. He's not adding friends on Facebook. He is simply going to go face-to-face with these people. Now, we often celebrate this when missionaries pass through and tell their stories, don't we? God sent me. And we celebrate that. We applaud that. We love it. I wonder how well we embrace that in our backyard. How do we live out sentness in our context of life? I wonder if we see the same things Paul sees in our classrooms and lunchrooms, our shared car trips, our family dinners, all those sorts of things. Can we see the context that we find ourselves in everyday life as ordained mission? I hope you can. If we can see it, you see, often we think about this clergy laity divide, which should not ever exist because scripture says that doesn't exist. All right, it's a priesthood of all believers here. We think, oh, we've got pastors, they do all the evangelistic, they do the work, and, and, and I just sort of come and observe on a Sunday. No, 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 no. Together, you and I go into an ordained mission field every day of our lives, every day of the week. We live that out together. My job is simply to be a coach and inspirer, but I'll tell you right now, we all have something ordained for us. We see in this passage that it is a personal thing. It's not Antioch going, oh, gee, we should send someone. It's Paul going, I should go. Both Paul and, Paul and Barnabas have a pull in their spirit that says, we've got to go. It also becomes quickly clear here that the pull in their spirits is leading them to different destinations. Paul is looking ahead up the coast to his home region of Cilicia there. Tarsus is in that area there. That's his home turf. He's kind of looking to go to a familiar territory that he knows. He's hopefully looking to break new ground beyond. Barnabas is looking across the sea there to Cyprus because that's his hometown. And they've got different viewpoints, different view, places they want to go to. Paul has a team in mind that doesn't include Mark. Because he had a history of desertion. Barnabas wants Mark, it's his cousin, wants his cousin Mark to come along with him because he believes Mark has done some growing up since then. 
Seeing things differently in mission doesn't always mean disunity is brewing. It just simply means that God is creating a multi-pronged approach to doing evangelism and creating mission opportunities. I often see this in churches that because something isn't mentioned in church, some people in the church will sit on their hands going, oh, well, that's the church's mission field, therefore it's not mine, so I'll just sit on my hands and sit by and just sort of fly the flag and support those things even though I might not agree. But I believe God sends out a number of expressions from every congregation. We don't have to sit back and be observers in someone else's mission or journey. We have our own thing to actually look into here. In Antioch that day, seeing things differently actually meant that the church was able to double its missionary thrust into the Gentile world. But also that double up led to the restoration of a believer. Barnabas was able to take John with him and the text tells us they went to Cyprus. In the first missionary journey, Mark had been helpful in their travels throughout that region. He traveled through Cyprus with Paul and Barnabas and they did really, really well together. But when they got up to the mainland, when they started getting into those, those Cilicia and, and those areas beyond there, Mark shot off back to his mum's place in Jerusalem. He couldn't hack it anymore. There's actually widespread belief among scholars that he might have even taken offense at Gentiles coming to faith in such high numbers. Some believe he was a leader who was holding that legalistic view that a Jerusalem council was addressing. But in any case, take heart. You are never too far gone to get back to a missionary place. Some people don't engage in mission because they feel like they're too much of a failure in themselves. Some people don't go, I can't. Some people hide behind, I have messed up, therefore I can't do anything powerful for Jesus. I can't proclaim him, I can't announce the kingdom, I can't demonstrate the kingdom of God, I can only just sit on the sidelines licking my wounds because I tried and I failed. No. There is a shot. If you still believe in Jesus, you pick yourself up and you keep moving. And you do things for his name. I wish I had time to preach the story of Mark when eventually Paul goes, I don't want to take him now, but later on writes, get Mark for he's useful to me. We see in our text that although Mark might not have been cut out for the new ground that Paul wanted to explore, he was cut out for the field that he was once effective in. All right, Barnabas saw the potential, Mark had the desire, and Mark could have lingered in Jerusalem, he could have sat on the back row in Antioch. Instead, he went with his cousin, got back on his horse, and went to a place where he knew he could be effective. So we start with the right heart and mind. Go, seek, nurture. Take that mindset into every context we go to. I'm going from today, I go And then I seek and I nurture in the context of mission that Jesus has me in every day of my life. Let's keep reading. Chapter 16. Just a series of thoughts about mission here. Hopefully this is going to be helpful to some. 16 verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived. 
whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. All right, my next thought is simply this. Mission requires an adjustment of culture or an adjustment to culture. Paul has selected a team here for very good reason. He leaves Antioch with who? Silas, yes, Silas. Silas seemed like the perfect traveling companion for Paul. He was a fellow Jew. He also had that old school Hebraic leanings that Paul had. But more notably, like Paul, he was a fellow Roman citizen. He even had a Roman name name to operate under in his travels. We read a number of times about him in Paul's letters under the name Sylvanus. He's also very fluent in Greek. Paul, sorry, Silas has served the church in Antioch as a recognized prophet. The role of a prophet is always to bring the word of God to the people. A priest would stand in intercession for the people. So for the mission field at hand, Silas was a really, really good fit. He's a man of godly heritage and conviction, but also a man of the people. He could speak the language of the people and he could deliver a prophetic message to that people. Great. Then in their travels, they find another treasure they get back to that little backwater town called lystra and they discover a young fellow there named timothy some verses on screen there now Two timothy tells us that he was a, had a very rich jewish heritage his mother eunice and his grandmother lois had lived very devout jewish lives it's believed that one of those maybe have, have been converted on paul's first trip through there Further in at 2 Timothy 3, we read that Timothy had been raised in the law of the Lord from his earliest days. So he's been raised with a very strong Jewish heritage himself. Our passage today tells us that he'd grown up into a great young man where his godliness was known in his village, but also some distance up the road in Iconium. But Timothy had a little secret. His mum was Jewish, but his father was a Gentile, a Greek. Yet Timothy practiced faith in line with his mother's convictions. Lystra didn't have a big enough Jewish presence to form a synagogue. So the Jewish authority pushing the letter of the law in that area was quite lax. So Timothy had managed to slip through the cracks in one of the key elements of Jewish faith in men. He hadn't been circumcised, and this was actually a big deal for Jews. Now, in light of the discussion held at the Jerusalem Council, which is only in the previous passage, we know that this was not a salvation issue. This was not a heaven or hell thing. 
his liberty to remain in the state he was had just been fought for by Paul and endorsed by the church. As a Christian, Timothy was under the grace of the cross, not under the burden of the law. The local priest could put away the scalpel in this instance because he would play no role in Tim's salvation. There was, however, one other perspective to consider here. Paul could see the influence this godly young man could wield. But there was a cultural blockage in play that would hinder his effectiveness. To the Jews, he was talking the talk, but he was somewhat of an apostate. He had the faith connection, but not the circumcision to truly identify as one of them. So he will have gone, oh yeah, you, we kind of like what you sort of stand for. You're a nice fella, but you're not one of us. But to the Gentiles, it was slightly odd and that he was caught up in that whole minority Jewish thing. But his outsider status, even to the Jews, would have been apparent even to the Greeks. So in other words, as God-loving and God-honoring as he was, he actually wasn't the right fit for reaching his local culture for Jesus. He was somewhat socially inept for the task of mission that he was called to and he was going to run into problems. Reason being, Paul had paved the way in his previous journey. He had a standard way of doing his mission, didn't he? Synagogues first, then marketplace. Taking Timothy into a synagogue would have lost all credibility the way he was. If Timothy was going to take part and relate in that environment, he actually needed to allow a certain part of himself to be cut off. He had potential, but he needed to make a cultural adjustment in order to be effective as a minister in his environment. I say that, and I think there's a few thrusts on that. You see, I don't know about you, but my personal mission field has a culture about it. So does yours. Every place you go where unchurched people are, where people who don't know Jesus are, it has a culture about it. And sometimes we kind of aren't the best fit for it. There's an element here, I think we need to be a little bit like Silas here and be able to speak the language of the people. That means discarding some of the Christianese that we've grown up in. Are you washed in the blood, brother? Means nothing out there. I know what it means. You know what it means. But the church, the world doesn't. It means not assuming people know what you're on about. And unfortunately, it actually means in today's age, age not assuming that your audience even knows who Jesus is. The Jesus awareness in our world today is so low it's not funny. But also like Silas, our role is to have something to say to that environment. Speak its language, but have something to say to it. Something living and active from God. Something, dare I say, prophetic. So that's the main purpose of the Holy Spirit. 
He saves us and he empowers us. And when he empowers us, the biggest voice that is to come from us is prophetic. We highlight tongues in certain churches. We talk about all these other spiritual gifts. But Paul says, prophecy, number one. What prophetic voice do you have in the language of the people to those people? Timothy, we should allow, we need to adapt to the culture that we are ministering to. And I say this in a bit of a twofold way. I'm going to speak a bit of commentary into the church world today. I believe a bit of clear to outsiders religious reverence actually has some power to it. There's a lot of, in the West today, there's a lot of be like the world going on in churches today. We, we're talking about socially relevant, so we will tattoo, tattoo ourselves up to Billy O. I have no problem with tats, but if we're trying to do it, oh, I'm going to get a whole sleeve to make myself look like the world, or if I'm going to, if I'm going to talk in such a way that I'm going to be so much like the world that the world actually can't see the difference. Some of us deliberately throw in our swear words so that we can sound like them or we deliberately drink a little bit too much to kind of behave like them and yet they go and then we get to, we wonder why some of the people go well I don't think I need Jesus because I'm no different to you. A bit of actual reverence that says I am a little bit different kind of fits to actually the act that Timothy went through was in fact a religious right he actually needed to do something that made him look like a little bit more religious for both the world and the Jews and both the Jews and the Gentiles to embrace him even the Greeks would have gone well you aren't following the letter of law of a Jewish thing how do we know that you've got this thing down in his immediate environment, he needed to do that. So while there's also that clear religious reverence that kind of should be on display to us a bit, we should behave a little bit different. But also, culturally, we need to lose some of the legalism that we, behave, we operate under too. There is that give and take. We understand that we live... You know, look, I was in a very legalistic church when I grew up. And I was discipled into destroying every non-Christian cassette I had uh, to, you know, to never like we had a church where our pastor would call families to account if they went to Billabong restaurant because there was alcohol served there it's like where do you not have a alcohol in a restaurant nowadays McDonald's pastors would actually call people into their office and go please explain we saw your car out the front of the pub what's going on I actually had created such a barrier with that that I was so heavenly minded I was no earthly good. And when I finally realised I actually could grace darken the doorstep of a, a venue like that and I could sit with my workmates and actually sit down with them in that setting, the barriers were broken down in a big way. And I was blown away by how effective all of a sudden I was. People didn't want to talk to me about Jesus on the street, but they would talk to me on a bar stool. So weird. 
So there's a twofold approach to that. Let's get ourselves culturally right. Let's understand the culture we operate in. Let's make our faith on display, but also let's understand that we've got to kind of speak their language and understand where they're coming from too. And as believers, we tend to stick to our own thing and our own culture, and we often expect the world to step into ours. Jesus himself, what's the story of Jesus? The word became flesh and dwelt amongst man. He didn't try to go, you will do everything to attain heaven and you have to come to me. He actually come down to man to show what the kingdom of God was like. We are doing the same thing in our environment. We are showing what the kingdom is like, but we've got to go to where people are to show it. It's called incarnational mission, getting amongst it. What things need to cut off what persons do we need to make? And finally, let's keep reading. Verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they, went, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirits would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went to Troas, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Third thought is simply this. Mission requires being in your right place. Knowing where you need to be and doing it. We read here that they've done what Paul initially set out to do, to deliver the findings of the Jerusalem Council to the churches which had been established in previous times. This has been a source of strength, a source of clarity for churches, and the legalistic believers have been put back in their box. They're now being compelled to go further into new ter territory, but the itinerary has not been set yet. They would have been a Pisidian Antioch. That was their last stop. That's where, that was the extent of the first missionary journey. There was a major highway, the Via Sebaste, which went southwest towards Colossae and ultimately Ephesus. But we read here that the Holy Spirit was stopping them in this case from going there. So they hit the northern road and get within reach of Bithynia and towns such as Nicaea along the strategic Black Sea region. Another prime spot. But the passage says the spirit of Jesus constrains them from going east. From that point, the only option is to head west. And when they hit Troas on the Aegean Sea, they stay put and wait for the Lord to direct. What's interesting thus far is that the only word from God is that the, travel, that the travelers have received at that time seemed to be a no. Some missionary journey, isn't it? You know, it's like, you know, we come down here. Okay, we're, where are we going to go now? God says no there. All right, let's go north. Yeah, we'll get, we've traveled a quite a distance, get there, okay, there's a signpost, let's turn. God says no. 
All right, well, let's turn left. Get to there. There's only water. Where do we go from here? In Troas, God says yes. And it's here that Paul gets a vision to cross the sea to minister in Macedonia and uh, the church is about to set up its second European beachhead. The first one was Rome. As I think about this passage, a couple of things have come out really clearly. One, in this passage that I just read out to you, God has been deliberately referred to in his full Trinitarian form. Did you see that? Verse 6, the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus. Verse 10, God the Father. We've got a Trinitarian view of God in Acts. But secondly, real simple, the disciples had a divinely appointed place to be. And it would be in that appointed place that their ministry would flourish. They didn't get much done until they got there. But it's okay. God is sovereign. Keep plugging away till you find yourself where God says yes. If you're getting no's, it could be that that's someone else's field. It could well be that that's something else for someone else to do. Whenever we just need to be seeking... I, I tapped into this before. We need the Holy Spirit, right? And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He says yes and he says no and he says go and he says stay. He does all those things. And when we get there, great things occur. So when God ordains our personal mission field, we first become aware of that because God places it very clearly on our heart. He puts that desire within us to go like these disciples did. He then gives us wisdom to go and get ourselves culturally ready. And he gives us a prophetic voice to bring to our field of mission. And after that, he says yes and commissions us for service in that field. As we're discovering that, you might find some no's along the way. Sometimes the path will be a little bit unclear. Sometimes God will go, walk that direction. Where to? Just walk. Sometimes I kind of do that with very folded arms and gritted teeth, I'll tell you now. Here? No. Here? No. Rest assured that Jesus is leading us all towards an effective place to do the work of the evangelist. He has a mission, mission field set aside for us all and if we wait on him, he will lead us to whatever and wherever that is. So I'm going to draw to a close now. I'm just going to leave those thoughts with you. I'm going to invite the band to come up at this time. As they prepare, I wonder if you would close your eyes and let me ask you a few questions right now.